2: Citizen Lab finds and Apple patches a zero day used for zero click installation of Pegasus spyware. A Cobalt Strike beacon has been turned to cyber espionage use against Linux targets. The Russian government could, it seems, take action against cybercrime, but its will to enforcement seems to be inconsistent. Ben Yellen from UMDCHHS with more on Apple's CSAM controversy. Our guest is Mel Shakir from Dream Adventures on selling the CISOs and their customer sprints. Our evil makes nice with grumpy affiliates. And Criminals' commitment to the common good seems weak. That's not a surprise, right? From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman filling in for Dave Bittner, with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. During its investigation of a Pegasus spyware infection of a Saudi activist's iPhone, the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab has found a zero-day, zero-click exploit against iMessage. They call the exploit... Forced entry, say it targets Apple's image rendering library, and claim that it's effective against Apple iOS, macOS, and watchOS devices. Forced entry is a zero-click attack requiring no obvious user interaction. Victims may be unaware that their devices have been affected. Malicious files masquerading as GIFs were the infection mechanism, and they arrived courtesy of an unremarked bug in Apple's image rendering. As Apple put in their description of the vulnerability, quote, processing a maliciously crafted PDF may lead to arbitrary code execution, end quote. In this case, the arbitrary code would be the Pegasus Intercept product. The Wall Street Journal reports that NSO Group, maker of Pegasus, has apparently been exploiting the vulnerability since February. The company, asked for comment, simply told the journal, quote, NSO Group will continue to provide intelligence and law enforcement agencies around the world with life-saving technologies to fight terror and crime, end quote, which is one way of looking at it. Citizen Lab and Apple made fairly short work of patching. Citizen Lab forwarded Apple suspicious artifacts on September 7th. Apple confirmed that they included a zero-day exploit on the 13th, And late yesterday also addressed the vulnerability with an update to iOS 14.8. Users are advised to upgrade their devices as soon as practicable. Subsequent releases of iOS will also be designed, Cupertino says, to keep this particular back door firmly shut. We have a roundup of industry reaction and advice to force entry in this afternoon's pro-privacy briefing. Intezer has discovered a criminal version of Cobalt Strike's beacon, Vermilion Strike, they're calling it, used by unknown threat actors against both Windows and Linux systems. Vermilion Strike may be the work of a gang, but its sophistication and evident interest in espionage could also suggest that it might have been developed and deployed by a nation state's intelligence service. But both provenance and attribution remain unclear. Intezer thinks the Linux attacks most noteworthy, if only because their lower detection rates can lead to Linux exploits being overlooked. Quote, Vermillion Strike and other Linux threats remain a constant threat. The predominance of Linux servers in the cloud, and its continued rise, invites APTs to modify their toolsets sets in order to navigate the existing environment. End quote. CSO thinks that recent events have revealed that Russian government is fully capable of shutting down cyber gangs, if it wants to, and that some disruptions of criminal activity may indicate that U.S. sanctions are having some limited effect. That Russia could, if it wished, take action against cybercrime seems beyond serious dispute. Controlling the gangs would seem to be more a matter of want to than it is can do, as football coaches are wont to say about tackling but encouraging signs of better behavior seem thin. CSO cites as evidence of a little bit of want-to, Roskomnadzord's blocking, a week and a half ago, of several VPN services that were used for various purposes criminal under Russian law, including drug trafficking, child pornography distribution, extremism, and promotion or facilitation of suicide. The services blocked included some familiar names. OLA VPN, Express Keep KeepSolid VPN Unlimited, NordVPN, Speedify VPN, and IPVanish VPN. None of these, we can't help but observe, are Russian operations. They hail, respectively, from Israel, the British Virgin Islands, New York, Panama, Philadelphia, and Dallas. Nary a Chelyabinsk among them which offers a partial explanation, perhaps, of the want-to on display in these cases. It's also worth noting that they all have legitimate users, and users which and whom, Roxcomnazor says, it's whitelisted. CSO also cites the arrests of some senior FSB figures in December 2016 and January 2017 as evidence of potential want-to but those personnel were arrested and convicted on treason-related charges. They'd been sharing information on cybercrime with Western law enforcement agencies. Those arrests occurred before the latest round of U.S. protests and sanctions, however. One of the Russian gangs that was imperfectly controlled, R-Evil, is now pretty clearly back in business, ThreatPost confirms. They say that the decryptor released to Kaseya was all a mistake, the fat-fingered fumbling of one of their operators, who's now presumably on whatever counts as a performance improvement plan in the underworld. Whether Fingers of size actually had anything to do with it or not, our evil is back, and trying to make it all up with their disgruntled affiliates, who've complained to the gangland arbitration panels that apparently form from time to time in various dark corners of the dark web. Our evil seems to have refunded payments to criminal affiliates, who felt they've been shafted by comping them to make them whole again. So expect to see more our evil. And finally, various gangs have sought to wear Robin Hood's hat, claiming they act not against the common good, but only against the wealthy. Wealthy elite, as the shadow brokers used to say. And by the way, where are those guys? We kind of miss them. But a recent cyber attack on Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, courts, should move us toward reluctant skepticism about whether such public spirit is widespread in gangland. An unspecified gang took advantage of the distraction of Hurricane Ida to install unspecified malware in the court's networks, NOLA.com reports. The courts are expected to recover soon.
1: Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com/zerotrustai. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? That's vanta.com slash cyber. Let's face it. If you're on the sales and marketing side of the house, one of the challenges you likely face is getting quality time pitching your wares to CISOs. Mel Shakir is Managing Director for Security Investments at Dream Ventures, a venture fund for startups. When I recently spoke with him, he emphasized networking and, not surprisingly, taking advantage of opportunities provided by VCs like himself.
0: My background, again, is in cybersecurity. I've spent almost 20-plus years uh, working in this field and have a deep, intrinsic knowledge uh, in the cyberspace itself. That matters uh, because even for us to be able to pick the right companies that we want to invest in, that is an important part of the equation. Also, you know, good understanding of the trends and where the industry is going, uh, anticipating, you know, what the CISO's needs are now and what they're going to be in the future. All of those things factor in, you know, when we uh, make an investment in the company. So again, these are highly filtered. I do product deep dives. In early calls, um, many of these startups who reach out to us, they get surprised that I'm not just talking about um, all the other aspects of the business. The very first question I ask is, you know, can you do a product demo? I want to do a deep dive of the product, get me excited about the product, then we'll talk about everything else. So yes, um, you know, having a deep understanding of the product, the technology, that is important. Uh, I need to be able to communicate that also to the CISOs.
1: Are there any common mistakes that folks make in their interactions with CISOs? Are there there things that you you shouldn't do because it'll really just turn them off at the outset?
0: Yeah, I I think... uh, CISOs are very technical by nature. So, you know, one of the things uh, I always tell founders is, you know, take your A-team when you're meeting CISOs, for one. Uh, The other important thing is preparation, right? Before you go to meet with a CISO, uh, have an understanding of uh, why they are meeting you and there are a number of ways you can get to that information. Uh, You could be, in some cases, you might be able to reach out to the CISOs and get that information, but you could reach out to their team members right? Uh, or you could reach out to the partners. Uh, you have to do some due diligence. You know, the kind of legwork the sales team and the biz dev teams will do uh, to be prepared, right? So be prepared for those meetings. Uh, also try to have an understanding of the broader vision and roadmap for the CISO and try to uh, understand, you know, how you're going to fit in, in their world. So preparation is the key uh, if you're going prepared. And if you're, uh, you're talking about your solution, which is not in context with what the CISO's needs are, what his vision is, you're certainly going to turn them off. Uh, And the other important thing is um, when talking about traction, every CISO wants to know whether your product is being used by other CISOs, especially ones that they might know. Uh, So you have to be careful about that. Uh, It's not very hard to anticipate what the network of a CISO is going to be. If he's based out of the Northeast, he's likely to know you know, CISOs and those in the area where he resides, right? Because there are lots of local forums that they would be meeting. If you have had interactions with them, uh, real ones, that they are going to be able to reference and validate, then make those references, not just uh, throwing out names and logos, uh, because they will verify that.
1: That's Mel Shakir from Dreamit Ventures. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. But more important than that, he is my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, it's great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. We recently had a special edition of Caveat where we spent the entire episode talking about Apple's uh, announcement that they were going to do some on-device scanning for CSAM, which is uh, child sexual abuse materials. Do I have that right? Yes. Yes. And, of course, that was quite controversial and uh, has garnered Put it a, mildly, yeah. garnered a lot of coverage uh, from folks who are concerned about privacy. Uh, there's been an update here. What's the latest, Ben? So Apple has partially reversed its decision.
3: Mm. Uh, so I don't think we should over-exaggerate what they're doing here. You know, it's been reported in some news sources that Apple has walked back their announcement. I don't think that's entirely accurate. What they're saying is we need more time to study it. We're going to hit the pause button on our plans. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to figure out a way to monitor for this exploitative material, but in a way that doesn't violate user privacy. Mm. So the big objection is to the program where Apple would be scanning on your devices um, through your photos, your iCloud photos, for sexually exploitive pictures that match pictures on a database maintained by organizations like the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Obviously, that's an extremely worthy goal. I think Apple thought that um, they were being good Samaritans by developing this program, and it seems like they didn't really anticipate that there would be a backlash. Right. Um, This was a pretty widely publicized decision. They sent out um, information on the technology to advocacy groups. Um, I mean, you know, to put it, relatively mildly, they were kind of bragging about what they were doing.
1: It was and is a clever technological solution.
3: Absolutely, to an extremely worthy goal. Right. Um, You know, we cannot minimize the importance of keeping this type of material out of the hands of uh, bad actors. Right. Because there was this backlash, Apple, in wanting to maintain its reputation as the foremost protector of user privacy, realized that they had gone a step too far. And I think... The lesson here is activism matters. Um, This company, you you can hold organizations and companies reliable by raising hell when something happens that you disagree with. Mm -hmm. Activist groups such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Epic sprung into action, got petitions together, wrote op-eds, and it had a really big impact. And as I said to you on the Caveat podcast, sometimes, you know, You can have more of an impact on private sector decisions than you can on, um, you know, your own lawmakers Mm -hmm. because there's more accountability. I mean, if you have a problem with what Apple has done, you can move on to the next product. Right. Um, And I think Apple is very attuned to that. So that's, to me, the broader lesson here. We don't know what Apple is going to do going forward, uh, whether they will fully reverse this decision or whether you know, while we're all sleeping on some Friday night, they're going to reinstate the program. Yeah,
1: right, right. Well, that's—I mean—that's an interesting question. I've seen some folks uh, sort of cynically say that that was, it could be Apple's next step is to sort of wait for the heat to blow over. And then just quietly enable this in some future software update. Do you think at this point they could get away with that? I mean, I think it's possible they try to do that. I think because
3: this has already happened and they've already raised the ire of privacy and uh, groups and security advocacy groups. Mm-hmm. No matter what they do now, there's a watchful eye on Apple's behavior. Right. So I don't. I. I don't think we're in a situation where cut three months ahead in December, it's Christmas Eve, and Apple you know, <laughs> right, tries to avoid right, the publicity. Right, right. I, I, I don't think that's going to happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, interesting uh, to see Apple walk back something like this, which I think is we can agree is sort of contrary to their corporate impulse, right? Right. Right. <laughs> you know, as I said, they came out with this, and and I think they thought it was a very clever technological solution to a serious problem— And it is, and uh, the backlash maybe makes them take a closer look at at the issue, but maybe hopefully themselves, right, as to how they approach these sorts of things in the future.
3: I think it's a it's a wake up call for Apple, mm-hmm. um, and it's really all due to our caveat podcast. Let's be honest; <laughs> we know right. they listen to it. That's right. That's yeah. right. And yeah.
1: Well, I, I just can't get Tim Cook to stop writing me with the. I just like all right, Tim. I get it. Just I know. Stop Leave us r- alone, Tim. so that my inbox is full of uh, just uh, effusive praise. Tim Cook. From, Tim Cook. Tim God, Cook. God, yeah. Tim. All right. So needy. All right. Well, Ben Yellen. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
2: Our amazing CyberWire team is Trey Hester, Peru Prakash, Justin Saby, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Balecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Dave Bittner, and I'm Elliot Peltzman. Thanks for listening.